0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on P.A. Books, Anne-Marie Ackerman, author of Death of an Assassin.
0: Anne-Marie Ackerman, author of Death of an Assassin, the true story of the German murderer who died defending Robert E. Lee. How did you find out about this
1: story? I found it in a 19th century diary in German from a forester. I was actually, um, I've been a bird watcher all my life and wanted to research the local birds for my German Historical Society. I've been living in Germany for 22 years. The head of the Historical Society gave me this unpublished diary. And there, between the mentions of hazel grouse and kingfishers, I found a murder. And the murder surprised me because it took 37 years to solve, and it was solved in Washington, DC. I used to be a prosecutor in the US, and I knew based on my experience, especially for the 19th century, that was an incredibly long period of time. And to have it solved in the United States was also extremely unusual. As a matter of fact, the case was a record breaker for both those reasons.
0: When did you decide that there was a book in this?
1: Well, you know, originally I was thinking it would be yet another article for our local historical society. But I knew that the murderer had fled to the United States, had fled to Philadelphia. So I started tracking him through the American archives. And when the trail led me to Robert E. Lee, I suddenly realized, uh uh-oh, this is something bigger.
0: So the murder took place in the town you live in in Germany right now? That's
1: exactly, that's right. Our mayor was assassinated on the street. When was this? In 1835, in October. He had spent the day at the funeral of a local butcher, went to a pub to eat dinner, and at about 9.45 at night got up to walk home about 200 yards, and he was only four steps from his front door when he got shot in the back. Didn't see who did it. He lived for yet another 36 hours, was interviewed by the detective, but had no idea who did it. What kind of town was
0: it in the 1830s?
1: Only 2,000 people. It's still a relatively small town, 7,000 today.
0: Where in Germany is it?
1: Southwest Germany in Baden-Württemberg, about an hour north of Stuttgart on the the Necker River, very close. And it's in the middle of Germany's wine-producing area. The whole town is surrounded by vineyards, very beautiful at this time of the year with all the fall colors. Lived primarily from the wine industry and the hospitality industry because a major trade route went right through town. So it was full of pubs, restaurants.
0: Murder was unusual at the time?
1: Yeah, especially because they had gun control already in Germany. Most of the murders were actually performed with knives or strangulation or through other methods. But, of course, to have the mayor murdered in cold blood, thats an unusual, that rises to the level of an assassination then. For the town, extremely unusual. That rocked the town right out of its orbit.
0: How did somebody get to be mayor at the time? I mean, was it appointed? Were they elected?
1: They were elected. Um, And that Germany, well, I shouldn't say Germany. Germany did not exist at the time. As a country, it was a number of smaller kingdoms. We were in the kingdom of Württemberg. Had had elections for mayor, even before this man was elected mayor. He was elected in 1823, was only 41 when he was shot, wasn't married, didn't have children, and the relatives could pretty quickly rule out personal conflict as a motive for the murder. But the detective was stymied. He couldn't find a political motive either.
0: What was law enforcement like then?
1: Very different. They did not have the police force that we know today. If a murder happened in a town, and you have to remember back then in Europe, the towns were usually enclosed by a city wall. The people would usually raise the hue and cry, chase the murderer through the town. The watchman would hear the hue and cry, slam the city gate shut, and the murderer would be trapped within the city. So when the detective arrived, he had the advantage of knowing somewhere in this town, in this finite number, I have the murderer. Um, It didn't work in this case We had a hole in the city wall, and the murderer knew about it. Um, But the closest detective, what we could today call the detective, was the investigating magistrate, a judge, and he worked for the entire county region and was an hour and a half away by horse and carriage. So when the mayor got shot, the doctor sent a message to the Well, he wrote police, but it would have been like the night watchman who sent a messenger to the town. It took until the next morning for the detective to show up.
0: Was murder investigation then anything like it is today?
1: No, because they didn't have the forensic techniques we have today. In 1835, photography had just been invented, but was not widespread. There was no fingerprinting and, of course, no DNA analysis. They were smart enough to look out for footprints, but they had not yet come up with a concept of securing the crime scene. So what happened in this case, word got out in town that the mayor got murdered. The whole town showed up to check out how the mayor was doing, and although, although the courtyard, the streets weren't paved then, there should have been great footprints. It just got trembled over. The interrogation was the detective's primary investigative tool but he got so frustrated he ended up inventing something brand new that we all know today forensic ballistics he got some great clues from the pellets found in the mayor's body and in the courtyard and did something that was supposedly first invented 50 years later.
0: How much documentation is there about this murder and the investigation?
1: The detective's file is unarchived with the state archives in Baden-Württemberg. It's had about seven to 800 pages. There are a few newspaper articles and several mentions in diaries in Germany, but the Detectives' file is the main source of information.
0: How does it read? Is it tough plowing or does it read like very, a detective story?
1: Very, because the Germans wrote in a script that nobody uses today. Oh, the the letters were all different. I had to learn to read a whole new script. It's all in handwriting. The detective had a scribe that worked like a court reporter, and at least this person was trained to write in beautiful handwriting but beautiful for that time. Um, Even modern Germans can't read it today without the training. But I was impressed with the thoroughness of the detective even though he didn't have the tools we had today. He interviewed upwards of over a hundred witnesses. He tried to do what basic physical examinations that were possible at the time. There was an autopsy a physician friend of mine read through the autopsy and was pleasantly surprised how much the doctors knew back then. Obviously, they didn't have the techniques uh, we have today. A good combination between modern and old-fashioned. And
0: you mentioned forensics, and how was it that, th- that that came into play with this investigation?
1: At the autopsy, the uh, mayor had been shot with a colorful mixture of buckshot, birdshot and Oh, you brought f- some along. Yeah. fox and badger shot. I brought the approximate mixture with which the mayor had been shot. He had I think 20 holes in his the back of his coat and 10 entrance wounds in his back. one exit wound in his chest. As a matter of fact, he died from collapsed lungs because that penetrated uh, his lungs, but at autopsy, the doctors autopsied out the pieces of shot and gave it to the detective, and the detective noticed that they had scratches on them and thought, hmm, maybe this could be a clue because I'm not getting anywhere with this investigation. He brought... Uh, the shot to the attention of the physicians who did the autopsy and asked if bones could have caused these scratches and the physician said no so the detective consulted with a gunsmith and the gunsmith said I know I know exactly what caused these scratches it was the rifling in a rifle the grooves in a rifle these spiral grooves that impart a more accurate path to a bullet And usually, you don't shoot shot through a rifle. It can ruin the rifle, but in a murder case, don't try to predict what a murderer might do. In this case, we know shot was shot through a rifle, and the rifle let scratches on the shot. And it wasn't just any kind of rifle. It was from fine grooved rifling. Most rifles have six to eight grooves with fine Feingrude rifling you'll see 15 to 20 maybe even up to 50 and they're rare and this was now a really good lead not only did the detective know it was a rifle that the murderer used it was a rare rifle so he ordered that everybody in town turn in their weapons and he got collected 48 and there was only one with fine Feingrude rifling He loaded it with a similar load of shot, test-fired into bags of sawdust, took out the shot, and could immediately see that wasn't the murder weapon. It didn't leave scratches that were as defined. And with that, he became the first person in history to eliminate a suspect weapon through forensic ballistics. And when I read this in the file, I did the only thing that anybody knows, that anybody who knows anything about the history of criminal investigations could do. I call the police because forensic ballistics was supposed to have been first invented over 50 years later in France. And I talked to the ballistic technician with the state police in Baden-Württemberg and said, hey, what is Germany doing, doing with this technique? 50 years ahead of time, and he was surprised, too. He said there's two reasons why forensic ballistics wasn't invented till the 1880s. One was because in the 1830s, or before then, guns used black powder. It burnt dirty, it left a dirty residue in the barrel, and that left scratches on the projectiles. And the, the weapons were front-loading you had to pound your projectile into the barrel so it got scratches on the way in and it got scratches on the way out they superimposed each other and that made it hard for analysis but the technician said maybe there's this really narrow exception if somebody shot shot through a rifle then maybe the shot is because it's so small picked up impressions in only one direction and if the murderer kept his barrel really clean Maybe there was no black powder residue. So he tested it in his lab with the state police. He got an antique gun with fine groove rifling, test shot, and came up with the same result that the detective had in 1835 buckshot with striations that were sufficient to classify the weapon as one with fine groove rifling. That meant that Germany invented forensic ballistics, not France. Did, did, they, did they
0: ever build on that? Like, they, did they subsequently use that technique, or was it a one-shot deal and then lay dormant until France? It was France? a
1: one-shot deal, but you have to realize, I mean, people could say, okay, the Frenchman who supposedly invented it, he published about it, and usually the first guy who publishes gets the credit. The case was still open. If our detective had published an article saying, hey, I discovered this really cool new investigative technique.
0: But he didn't and find I know, the killer.
1: <laughs> I know it was a rifle with fine-grooved rifling. What would have the murderer have done? I would have buried the rifle in the woods. A detective has a moral and professional obligation to keep the results of his investigation confidential. And unfortunately, he died before the case was solved. So his new invention never made it out.
0: There's a couple of quirky parts about the investigation. Like there was a, a, a young man who shot off his thumb that night, like right That's around true. the time the mayor was killed. That's
1: true. The very first suspect was a young man who had shot his pistol just 10 minutes before the mayor was murdered. That was in a churchyard. The mayor was about 300 yards away next to the palace. The young man was excited because the beautiful Katharina Meyer from Stuttgart had showed up for the night. And he wanted to shoot his pistol underneath her bedroom window to get her attention. Accidentally loaded the pistol with too much powder. That can cause the pistol to explode. And that's what happened. The pistol exploded. He blew his thumb off. And he ran in panic, in pain ran a circuitous route through the town and ended up at the surgeon's but the detective correctly came to the conclusion anybody who just lost his thumb in an accident first he can't handle a gun and is in too much pain to be committing a murderer a murder it wasn't him who did it so that just was just coincidence. a coincidence yeah
0: uh, who else were g- pulled in as suspects
1: There was a local vintner who had drunk a little but too much of the fruit of Bernick wine, got drunk in a pub and made the drunken announcement, I shot the mayor. Um, He was reported to the police but when the detective investigated him, he had an alibi. He had been home at night when the murder occurred. There was a young man who had emigrated a day or two after the murder and fell under suspicion, but as it turned out, he had also had an alibi. He wasn't in town at all the night of the murder.
0: There's also a gentleman by the name of Rupp who was a comb maker. He was under suspicion. It's true.
1: The town suspected him, but not the detective. I found in two different diaries talk about one particular man and his whole family came under suspicion. And in a small town, gossip can be bad. The town suspected, I think he was 27 years old at at the time, a comb maker, and made his life so much hell that he and his entire family, mother, brothers, and sisters, they all left for Philadelphia nine months after the murder. They found a new life here. He worked here for a while um, in a pub eventually moved to Washington DC and the paradox and all that is he was the man who ended up solving the case. You said you live in Germany? I live in Germany. Why? I married a German.
0: Are you able to work there?
1: Um, yes, I could. I, like I said, I was a lawyer at the time that I got married but to practice as a lawyer in Germany I would have had to go to German law school. I didn't take that step. I started doing legal translation, freelance for several years, and then recently stopped doing that, sort of retired, and started working on this book, which is probably the most fun work I've ever done. Uh, what is the town of Bonningham like, like now? like Berni- Oh, br- 7,000, still a wine-producing town. Um... V- it, the, with a very old city center that if you enter it, you almost feel like you're taken back to the 18th or 19th century.
0: If you go These, to the spot where the mayor was shot, what is there?
1: A courtyard. The mayor was shot right next to the palace. There's a palace all around the courtyard. And next to the courtyard is a building called the Bow or the Gentleman's Building that has a courtyard too. And he was in that courtyard just a few steps from his front door when he got shot. And the buildings still exist as they existed back then.
0: Is there a plaque or a marker of some sort on this site?
1: Two years ago, the city erected a memorial to the mayor as the result of the research in my book. And it is very close to the spot where he was shot. It's in that courtyard.
0: Did your book get a lot of publicity in Germany?
1: Yeah, a little bit. In the newspapers? Um, And I do city crime scene tours in both English and German. And that has drawn people in from well beyond Bernekheim. People have come up from Stuttgart, even down from Hessen, another federal state. Yeah, that has attracted attention. I've been asked to give a lecture in the state city archives as a part of a crime Week that attracted some attention. So, yeah.
0: Was this something that people know about in that town or had it been pretty much forgotten until you revived it?
1: Pretty much forgotten. The people in the historical society knew about the murder, but after the passage of almost 200 years, most of the people hadn't heard of it or weren't aware of it anymore.
0: Now, meantime, across the Atlantic, there was Captain Robert E. Lee, the other main character in your book. Mm-hmm. And what was he doing?
1: At the time of the murder he had actually just come back from Michigan and Ohio where those two states believe it or not almost broke out in a war over their border over the disputed Toledo Strip there was actually a battle between Between the two states. The army sent its Corps of Engineers up to the two states to survey the state boundary and try to calm the two states down. Lee was with the Army Corps of Engineers and did that work. Um, In 1837 to 1839 he was sent out to St. Louis. The Mississippi River at that time and the Ohio River were critical for the transportation of grain from the Midwest. They were all shipped down the rivers but the St. Louis Harbor filled up with silt and that disrupted all the river traffic, it disrupted the grain transport for the United States. Lee came down with the Army Corps of Engineers and set up a bunch of dikes to deflect the water flow and that washed all the silt out and saved the St. Louis Harbor. Um, Then he taught at West Point for a while where he got to know General Winfield Scott and that played a role then when the Mexican-American War broke out in 1846. Because Scott came up with the idea that if he could march from Veracruz to Mexico City, the same route that Cortez took, he could capture Mexico City and win the war. That's exactly what happened.
0: Did he bring Lee along because of yes. his expertise as
1: an engineer? Partially, and because he got to know Lee at West Point and was very impressed with Lee. So Lee was one of Scott's right-hand men at the, uh, during the Mexican-American War and at the Siege of Veracruz, which was Lee's very first battle. And that is where fate, the German fate and the American fate, crossed each other. Because you don't usually think of Robert
0: E. Lee as, as building dikes and bridges. You think of him as a fighting
1: man. You think of him as a fighting man, and of course the Civil War I think has overshadowed his entire life. But I think even if he had never been in a battle, I think history would still remember his name for saving the St. Louis Harbor. That was quite an accomplishment.
0: That's his picture on the front cover of your book. Yes, the
1: young Robert E. Lee at the time of the Mexican-American War. And it's good that you mention that because some people haven't recognized him and thought it was the murderer. No, please, people, that's (laughs) Robert E. Lee, not the murderer. So
0: also, at the same time, there was things going on in Texas. What was going on in Texas?
1: Yeah, Texas had a revolution for independence in 1835. It used to belong to Mexico. It allowed a lot of American, U.S. American immigrants to come in, and they didn't like the way, they didn't like some of the changes in the Texas Constitution. The Mexican Constitution had their revolution in 1835, 1836, and Function is an independent country for 10 years. The U.S. annexed Texas, that got Mexico angry. There were some disputes at the Texas-Mexican border, and that's what ignited the Mexican-American War. Polk declared war, President Polk, in May of 1846, and asked the states to raise volunteer troops. And here in Philadelphia, there were a bunch of German militia. Our assassin from Germany was a member, and the washington Light infantry an all German company was the first company in Philadelphia to sign up as volunteers for the uh, Mexican-American War. They got accepted into the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment and it was their company that was defending Robert E. Lee at his battery when things got really interesting.
0: What did it mean to be the 1st Pennsylvania Volunteers? Who were they?
1: Uh, volunteers who fought in the war it was like the regular army except they were not controlled by the regular army they had to answer to, to General Scott but you had uh, local men serving as the captains the captain of the Philadelphia German company was Frederick Binder who was an immigrant from Stuttgart had been an alderman for a while later and later applied to head up the Württemberg Consulate in Philadelphia, and he gathered together all these German men who, although they were not U.S. citizens, I think were anxious to prove their loyalty to their new country, and signing up for the military was a good way to do it.
0: Well, our assassin had been in the army for a few years before that.
1: That's true. When this was an undeclared war, in Canada called the Patriot War. A bunch of Canadians wanted to have something like the US Revolution and were fighting for independence from Britain and were able to convince a bunch of US citizens it would be cool if you could fight for us. But that violated the Neutrality Act. The US government wasn't happy about it and obviously Britain wasn't happy about it. They set a ship US ship aflame and sent it over the Niagara Falls and that's when the president sent once again General Winfield Scott up to the Canadian border to protect the border to appease the Britons and to make sure that no more American citizens would cross the border to fight in the Canadian war and our assassin actually signed up for the US Army was in the um, 4th artillery First in Michigan and then in New York, at the border.
0: Now you go pretty far into the book without naming the name of the assassin, and we've gone pretty far into this interview without naming them. But what what can you tell us about the
1: assassin? I can tell you his name, on on air. And the reason why is I've structured my book not as a who done it, but a how catch him. His name was Gutlob Rube, and you would have never heard of him before, an unknown. Um, forestry worker in Germany. He worked as a baker in Philadelphia. But what got him famous, at least now that we know his name, is what he did when he was defending Robert E. Lee's battery during the war. Um, General Scott had set up a siege line around the city of Veracruz, but discovered that his army cannon were not strong enough to penetrate the city walls of Veracruz and came up with a brilliant idea with the US Navy. We'll dismantle the huge monster Navy cannon. haul them ashore. It took like over 100 men to pull these giant cannon over the sand in Veracruz, and they set up a Navy battery. Those cannon were strong enough to break down the city walls. It was because of those cannon that Scott easily won the siege of Veracruz. Robert E. Lee directed the fire at that battery. The sailors handled the guns. So it was a Navy battery even though it was on land. Navy battery on land. That's only happened a few times in history. And this German company from Philadelphia was assigned to protect the battery. They, so they were in the trenches not handling the cannon. And our assassin was hit in a leg by an incoming cannonball. Lee was very aware of what was happening to him. He had the man laid in a trench, struck a bush over him to make sure he wouldn't get too warm in the 100-degree heat, was concerned about him not getting enough water. And the irony of the thing is just when they thought it was safe to get the guy on a litter and take him to the hospital, they couldn't for hours because the incoming Mexican fire was too heavy. Just when they thought it was safe, they got him on the litter, an incoming ball from a Mexican fort with the biggest cannon in North America hit the man in the chest. He died instantly. And Lee, I don't think Lee even knew his name, but wrote a letter home with a long passage about this man's noble suffering and death And he ended up by writing, I doubt whether all Mexico is worth to us the life of this man. Now, Lee biographers have discussed this man in the literature. They don't know who he is. They they ask themselves, why would Lee write that about um, this soldier? One has suggested that Lee was trying to balance the necessity of sending men to their deaths with the fate of one particular man. A biography of George Washington Custis Lee, Lee's son, to whom he wrote the letter, has suggested that Lee was trying to hold up this man as a role model of courage for his son. The thing is, we, we can't answer what was in Lee's mind. But I can crack the identity of Lee's hero, this unidentified Mexican-American war hero. It was the assassin from Germany.
0: Th- this was Lee's first exposure to fire? His first Yes,
1: battle? his first battle. There was one moment a few days before when the army was reconnoitring the scene that a few cannonballs came over in Lee's direction. But uh, this was his first battle.
0: Do you get an indication from his comment about wh- whether this person's life is worth all of Mexico, whether Lee had doubts about his career as a soldier?
1: No. I, I t- although that's been suggested... Um, He's pretty positive about the rest of his battle experience. I tend, if I had to second-guess Lee, I would tend to think he was holding this man up as a role model for his son. That of all the deaths he experienced in the battle, this was the most noble.
0: And was it? He he was wounded and he had to lie still in the field for for a long time? In a
1: trench. He had his leg broken twice from incoming cannonballs. So... Uh, Lee had him laid in a trench and put a bush over him and made a comment that the cannon were pounding the ground and shaking the ground so heavily. The man must have been in in intense pain, but there was nothing they can do.
0: And the the man's name was Gottlob? Gottlob. Gottlob. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What do you know about him other than that he was in the Army? What, What did he do during his time in Philadelphia?
1: He worked as a baker for a year. He lived in the Old City or Kaluhel district on Crown Street. It used to intersect with vine. The street doesn't exist anymore. At some point in the past, it got raised. And there's, a I think, a building that covers the whole block. Um, And then he was a member of this German volunteer militia, which was not only did they practice drills it was also like a social club they put on dances not for the german community in philadelphia parades that sort of thing i researched him in the philadelphia city archives and the dust of the archives breathe a subtle tale of change because he was never mentioned in germany he got into trouble with a court with bankruptcy proceedings assaults, and it, there's nothing. It looks like he turned his life around in Philadelphia.
0: One of the things you talk about is uh, his, uh, his escape from Vortenberg, because mm-hmm. it, it was not easy. So how did he manage to, first of all, slip out? You said there was another hole in the gate that he got out?
1: There was. And, a, and how were yeah. you able
0: to trace his movements from slipping through the gate to showing up in Philadelphia?
1: There was a witness. There was one witness. Shortly after he heard the shot, um, which the mayor was shot, he saw a man slipping through the corridor between two houses, going across the street and slipping through more houses. And the detective did a crime scene sketch, mapped the route, and it was heading right towards a place where there was a hole in the city wall. This murder was planned. He knew about the hole. And he was headed right towards that hole
0: to I escape. To, I have to ask about something else. There's a, a lot of people were questioned. They said, oh, they didn't see anybody with a rifle. And you use the phrase a takedown rifle?
1: That's true. Um, Hans Gross, a law professor at the University of Vienna, was 19th century Europe's foremost criminologist, the first criminologist, to write a textbook on how to investigate a murder. And he wrote that the number one mistake that detectives made 19th century Europe was to assume that because a witness didn't see a weapon, there was no weapon. Because the most popular murder weapons were the so-called takedown rifles. Poachers used them because you could just break the pieces apart in seconds and hide them then in your coat. I visited an antique weapons dealer in Germany who had one of these old takedown rifles, and I was surprised. Literally, it took seconds for him to break this rifle down into pieces. As a matter of fact, they were so popular with poachers, uh, the kingdom of Württemberg had already made them illegal. But, like I said, if you want to commit a murder, there's no telling what you might do. You, if you're going to kill somebody, you might as well. Uh, break a law about weapons. Well, we,
0: one thing we did mention that is in the investigation is they, uh, there was some, a sign found
1: in the woods that had something written on it that implicated somebody in the murder? That's true. The murder was in October of 1835, and in May, in April or May of 1835, two people were walking in the woods, the municipal woods, and came to a shelter that's existed since the 16th century. And at that shelter, it's an intersection with five roads, and there is a signpost. And these two hikers noticed a freshly penciled-in message. Your shoemaker, and then a few letters, it wasn't clear, shot the mayor. And on another signpost, it was penciled in something about traveling through Heilbronn. And as we know from the later investigation in 1872, the murderer had actually left Germany for Philadelphia in April or May of 1836. Weeks, just weeks if not days before this message appeared. And I don't want to get too much into the motive, but the word shoemaker was significant. The detective was able to decipher the name of the man on the sign. This man had an alibi. The detective ruled it out, but didn't ask if anybody might have been angry enough with that man to have pinned a murder on him. And that goes back to the motive, which I reveal at the very end of the book which is a how catch i believe that message was left by the murderer especially since he left through the port of Heilbronn the city that he mentioned on the signpost and it all fits and you say in the book that
0: it was he had to get permission from Württemberg to emigrate
1: yes according to law if you wanted to do it legally you had to apply to a, for permission to emigrate prove that you had enough money for the passage, and you had to renounce your Württemberg citizenship, and then you got a passport. And Germany has very thorough records of those applications. And both the city kept them, and the kingdom of Württemberg kept them. And Gottlob Rup does not show up in the city records. He doesn't show up in the royal records. And he doesn't show up in the ship entry records in Philadelphia. Now, some of them might be missing. That might not be significant, but it is unusual to have them missing from the German side. Those are all signs that he emigrated illegally. Illegally. Probably, maybe under a false name. He did not inform Württemberg that he was leaving. His mayor later said he just disappeared from town from one day to the next, And the next thing they heard, he had already arrived in Philadelphia.
0: How hard would it have been to to hop a a boat heading for America?
1: I don't know. You needed to have the money, at least, to get a ticket. Um, Maybe he could have worked on the boat. But I think he had to come up with some kind of papers. I suspect he might have falsified some papers. And it might have been under a false name, because he didn't show up on the Philadelphia side. But perhaps some ships' uh, entry records are missing.
0: Were you able to find information about him in other records in Germany, I mean, his family and his growing up and
1: A little his bit, life. his estate records in Germany. He p- appears in the estate records. He appears in, I don't want to tell too much about his job because it goes to the motive. It appears in records about his job he appears in at the end when the case was solved in the investigative file in the state archives. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. You mentioned you were a prosecutor? Yes. What kind of a prosecutor, where?
1: I work for the Attorney General's office in the state of Washington and I handle the parole revocation hearings for a 10 county area. So if a parolee came out and violated the conditions of their p- parole or committed a new crime, I did the prosecution to get them back into jail, to get the parole revoked. Um, and I also did health law for the attorney general's office. I was a quackbuster. When the state wanted to revoke or restrict the license for a physician or a veterinarian, I handled those cases on it's behalf called of a the quack state. quackbuster. quackbuster,
0: yes. How long did you do that? How long were you a lawyer before you gave Ten it all up? Ten years. And you, you gave it all up to move to Germany?
1: Yes. I married a German. What happened, I was working for the Department of Health at the time that Clinton wanted to do his health care reforms. And I went to my boss and said, oh, and his health care reforms were based on the German insurance system. So I went to my boss and said, hey, I know German. Give me a four-month leave of absence and I'll do an internship with a law firm that's advising the Clintons in Germany. Then when it goes through, I'll be in a position to advise our government. I got the internship, and it was the day that I flew over in midair that Congress voted against it. So the internship professionally was not worth anything, but I met my husband. So for me personally, um, yes, that was a life-changing job and we got married and have been living there 22 years.
0: Have you tried your hand at writing other books before this
1: one? Not other books, but I am published. I've published academic articles, magazine articles. Um, I had a newspaper column for a while in Germany.
0: What's different about a book?
1: Longer. Yeah.
0: That's it? How long did you research it?
1: Three and a half years for this one. And this goes under the category of true crime? Yeah, true crime history uh, and military history as well.
0: Do you read true crime books? Yes,
1: yes, I do. It's always that? interesting me for me because I used to do criminal law. As a matter of fact, I used to even be interested in crime as a kid. I used to pretend I was a prosecutor when I was a kid. So it was, I guess, no surprise to my parents that I chose the career I did. Did you ever do courtroom prosecuting? Uh, no, um, with the parole revocation hearings, those were administrative hearings, and but I did argue motions in the courtroom. I didn't. I never had a jury trial. Yeah. Well,
0: getting back to the story, at at some point, somebody found out that this man had done
1: it. Yes, it was our German immigrant from Philadelphia, Rupp, Frederick Rupp, who by this time had moved to Washington D.C. and was working as a confectioner, and also invented a medical salve. And he quite coincidentally came across information from somebody in Philadelphia who said he knew who committed this murder and wrote a letter to the mayor of Bernekheim, Germany, saying, look, I heard this information in the U.S., and here's how you might be able to check it out. And what happened when that letter arose, arose, arrived in, in Germany in 1872, the German prosecutor reopened the case. They knew from the information that the assassin was already dead, but they still wanted to clarify it. They collected information from the assassin's old mayor, um, and they found corroborating evidence in the forestry department archives in Bernikheim's palace, it confirmed the information coming in from Washington, D.C. So the prosecutor was able to close the case as solved in August 1872 and with a stroke of his pen, like I said, he broke two records. The coldest case ever solved for 19th century Germany and it's only one solved in the United States. We know now that it was the first case to use forensic ballistics and then with a connection to the unidentified Mexican-American war hero. That makes it really an unusual, sensational case.
0: What was it about the, the evidence that they came up with in the, in the conversation that said who the assassin was that convinced the prosecutors in Germany that that was enough to close the books?
1: I won't say because that's the surprise at the end okay. of the book. It would be a spoiler. But what is interesting is I discovered in the course of the research that the city of Bernheim had issued a reward for solving the murder. And the way they phrased it was for identification of the murderer. Today, they would probably say for information leading to the conviction or prosecution or arrest. That meant the murderer could have been dead or alive. You would still be entitled to the reward. So this Frederick Rupp, this German immigrant who had moved to Philadelphia, then Washington DC, became the first man in 37 years with a valid claim to the reward. What did the city of Bernachheim do? Nothing. I checked the investigative file, I checked the German newspapers, I even checked the Washington DC newspapers and the thought that if a resident received a reward for solving a murder internationally that would hit the newspapers, nothing. I think the reason why it never got paid is that the city council minutes authorizing the reward got misfiled in the detective's file and got filed in the state archives. So I went to our mayor two years ago and said, why don't we pay it now? And he said, you know, 182 years after the fact, I don't think our city has a legal duty to pay the reward. But I think it would be the moral and diplomatic thing to do so he can't the reward old reward would have been worth about 5,000 euros in today's money he can't take that much out of the city budget but he's taking 200 out and two banks have chipped in and raised the reward to a thousand euros and we've been trying to contact the descendants of the man who solved the case all living here on the eastern seaboard to convince them to accept the reward. Uh, At the beginning, we had a little bit of of a credibility problem because it it doesn't sound like a true story. Hey, we want to give you money. (laughs) We want to give you money. Your great-great-great-grandfather solved a murder in our German town 180, 140 years ago or whatever. They hung up the phone.
0: Oh, you really did manage to find relatives. Oh,
1: yeah. But now that the books come out, the story has changed, and I hope that the mayor and I will be in the US next year to present a 182 year old murder reward. It looks good. I don't want to uh, say too much more about it because somebody else is sponsoring the reward presentation, and I want to let them announce it first.
0: You think you'll take on another book after this?
1: I might. I have a few ideas. The next project on my agenda is the German translation because the Germans are clamoring to read this book too. And I need to nurse that project along first.
0: You know enough German to do the translation? No,
1: uh, we are going to ask a German publishing house to do it, but I will be there to assist because a lot of the records that are quoted in the book are in German and the translator won't have that. I translated them into English, so I will be working with a translator.
0: Oh, one yeah. more question. the um, if the, the Rupp, the comb maker, yes? uh, he lived in this little town in Germany at the same time as our assassin lived there. Did they know each other?
1: No, because the assassin did not live in Bernekheim. He lived nine miles away. That might have been one of the reasons why it was so difficult for the detective to solve the case. He didn't know most of the people in Burnekheim, but if I told you the few people he knew, it would give away the catch Ketchum.
0: But they ended up in Philadelphia
1: at the same time?
0: Yes, coincidentally.
1: The man who committed the murder and the man who was suspected of the murder both showed up in Philadelphia the same year to escape the consequences of that murder.
0: Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Anne Marie Ackerman. She is the author of this book, Death of an Assassin, The True Story of the German Murderer Who Died Defending Robert E. Lee. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.